Engaging presentations on the most urgent problem of our day and what you can do about it. Now, the End Abortion Podcast by Priests for Life. And one glorious nation under God. And together, we will make America powerful again. We will make America wealthy again. We will make America strong again. We will make America proud again. And we will make America great again. Well, hello, friends, and welcome to Praying for America. It's good to be with you on this Thursday night, and we're going to continue to talk about the Democrats' attack on the Supreme Court and look at some interesting history about changes in the process by which we have brought justices onto the Supreme Court here in America. It's a big important part of praying for America. It's a big important aspect of saving America, what we do with that court. The only court, by the way, which was established by the Constitution. So we're going to start as we always do, looking at the Word of God. Let's pray together from Psalm 108. My heart is steadfast, O God. I will sing and make melody with all my being. Awake, O harp and lyre, I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your steadfast love is great above the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth that your beloved ones may be delivered. Give salvation by your right hand and answer me. Let us pray. Lord, we do pray that your glory will be exalted above the heavens and shine forth over all the earth, including America. When you are exalted, Lord God, America flourishes. Our founders exalted you Our founders appealed to you for the rightness of their intentions. Our founders expressed their trust in your providence, O God. Our founders knew that our destiny is in your hands and that that unless we hear your word, unless we adhere to your word, unless we allow your word to be the lamp for our feet, the light for our path, we cannot govern ourselves. Our founders knew this. Lord, we pray that our current leaders will know this as well. We pray that our current fellow citizens, those who go to the voting booths, will know this. We pray, Lord God, that your glory will be exalted in America. Save our nation from tyranny as you have preserved us throughout these centuries. So preserve us as we draw closer to our 250th birthday Bless us and strengthen us through Christ our Lord. Amen. Now, I remember graduating high school in the bicentennial year, 1976. I I bet there are some of you out there who belong to the same class. Let me know in the comments. But uh, bicentennial, now we're coming to the 250th anniversary in just a few years from now. It's not too early to start preparing for and planning how we're going to celebrate that anniversary. And One of the great ways we can do it is what we're doing here in these programs, becoming better informed citizens. One of the ways we can do it is to read 
key books that come out, like this one that we've been studying, The Democrat Party Hates America, and various other books as well uh, that I'll mention and that I regularly mention in these broadcasts, Becoming Better Informed Citizens, A Great Path to Saving Our Country. Now, we've started to look here in the chapter on the Democrat Party uh, Hates the Constitution, their war on the Constitution. That's the chapter we're examining. And we looked at that in a broad sense, and then we looked at it as applies to the attack on the First Amendment. Now we're looking at it as it applies to the attack on the Supreme Court. And as we said last time, it's one thing to disagree with a justice or to vehemently oppose his or her opinion in a decision, in a case. Well, it's fine to do that. We're supposed to do that. We certainly do that. We did that for 50 years against the Roe v. Wade decision. In fact, no decision was more widely criticized included by citizens and including by other courts than that Roe v. Wade decision that legalized abortion in 1973. No Supreme Court decision received more criticism than that one. And now it's been reversed. It's one thing, however, to vehemently criticize a decision. It's another thing to try to intimidate the court or the justices or to try to discredit the court or hijack the court. This is what the Democrats want to do. We talked a little bit last time about the attacks on the justices. We saw it when um, Schumer was railing in, in front of the Supreme Court steps at a rally. I was there. I was just a few yards from him when he lashed out against President Trump's at that time two appointees to the, uh, to the, uh, to the court. And he drew criticism from uh, many circles, including a rare rebuke from the court itself for saying to them that they would reap the whirlwind, that they would not know what, what hit them if they go forward with these pro-life decisions. And I saw, too, the, uh, the attacks on the court in, uh, in, in terms of the response to the Dobbs case and the protests on the justices' homes, etc., the threats to Justice Kavanaugh. Now let's move forward here in talking about another way that they are attacking the court. We're going to get, look at their attacks on some of the justices during their confirmation processes. We'll get to that here. But efforts to hijack the court. This is what we call court packing. Now, this, has, this is an idea that has not found favor with the American people. It was tried in the past, as we will look at here in a moment. American people don't want the Supreme Court to be just another political branch of government because then it would be redundant. We already have the House. We already have the Senate. We elect people to those bodies because of their political positions. They're supposed to advocate for their political positions. And we, we, we appreciate when they do that, and then we vote accordingly, or we lobby them as they consider legislation. But as Supreme Court Justice Amy Coney Barrett said in her acceptance speech when she was sworn in, she said, while the senators, and of course the members of Congress in the House too, while they are supposed to lobby for their positions, advocate their positions, they're doing their job when they do that. We as Supreme Court justices are not supposed to do that. And we're doing our jobs when we don't make 
some kind of public declaration of our political stances or our views on the issues. We're supposed to objectively look at the Constitution and the laws and make our judgment, make our interpretation in the case that is put before us. Key distinction. The Democrats don't care about that distinction. They want activist judges. They want a politicized Supreme Court. We know this. They have recently tried to do what FDR tried to do back in 1937. We'll look at this here uh, now in detail. That is pack the court. What do we mean by packing the court? Well, every time that there's a vacancy on the court, of course, there's a big national battle over who's going to fill that vacancy. And it depends very much on which political party is in power because the president nominates the justice. Now, in the ideal setup of things, you would hope that the president's nomination of a justice would depend on whom he thinks is the most qualified to carry out the role of a justice, which, as Justice Barrett reminded us, doesn't have to do with their political positions or their issue positions, but rather their fidelity to the Constitution. In an ideal world, you would think that those would be the criteria not only that the president would look at, but that the U.S. senators would look at it. Why do the U.S. senators have a role? Because they confirm the appointee to the court. They either vote yes or no, just like they do in a lot of other positions in the government. They, the Senate needs to confirm these people or reject them. And again, those votes should be based on the qualifications of the justice. It's such an intense battle each time it happens, and it does become politicized. But what the Democrats are saying now is, well, why don't we just increase the number? Now, the number of justices on the court is nine. Not because the Constitution says that, but it's because a num it's a number basically that we've, we've found workable as a country. We have found workable for a long time. The number has varied slightly over the years. But we've settled, as a practical matter, on nine. It's not that it always has to be that way constitutionally. But to say you want to change it, now we have to ask, well, what, 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 how is this going to inject politics into the court? Well, it's obvious, because if the appointees are being done with a view towards we want issues to be decided a certain way or we want certain, a certain party's policy preferences implemented in the Supreme Court decisions, well then, how is the Supreme Court different from a lawmaking body? And if that's the way the appointments are going to go, well, what if we could make, you know, um, six, appoint six new appointments all at once? Because, of course, the Democrats are talking this way because they've lost the control of the Supreme Court. The balance shifted because of the, some of the very nominations that we're going to see how contested they were. It's now either 5-4 or 6-3, depending on what the specific issue is, in favor of con the conservative side of the court. Now, of course, we should be looking at what's the constitutional side of the court. But the fact of the matter is, very often, the conservative position on issues is, in fact, decided just on the constitutionality question, because conservatives believe in conserving the Constitution. 
And so you are going to have that overlap. You are going to have that identification in so many cases of the conservative position on the issues or the Republican position on the issues and, in fact, what an objective analysis of the Constitution would lead you to conclude. Let's look at what, tri- what they tried to do back in, under FDR in 1937. Roosevelt hatched a plan called the Judicial Procedures Reform Bill of 1937 that would allow the president to appoint an additional justice for every sitting justice who was over 70 years of age. Roosevelt could add six of his own justices to the court with two liberals already. See, by the way, the policy preference that was driving this was his New Deal. He wanted justices who were going to be in favor of this. Roosevelt could add six of his own with two liberals already on the bench. That would put the odds in FDR's favor. Now, again, step back and think. Is this what the court is supposed to be? The American people, even though they, they will differ in how well they can articulate this or understand it from a constitutional perspective, instinctively, in our American DNA, we, we want an independent judiciary. Because any of us can end up in front of a judge who has to decide. We want justice to be blindfolded. We don't want them to see that it's me or you or Donald Trump or anybody else. We don't want them to see faces. This is a biblical idea, by the way. There's a prescription in the Old Testament about judging that says you shall not see faces. Literally, be blindfolded. We want that instinctively as Americans. We want impartial judges. We want a judge, if we're, because we know in the back of our minds, if we're in front of a judge and a very popular or very wealthy or very influential or politically strong person is opposing us, we want that judge to be able to see where justice lies. It may in fact lie with us. And we want them not to take into account the political influence, the wealth, or the popularity of the person who might be opposing us in a particular case before the court. Well, let's read what happened back in 1937. Five weeks after its introduction in June 1937, the Judiciary Committee sent a report with a negative recommendation to the full Senate about this court expansion idea, quoting from the report, The bill is an invasion of judicial power. Such has never before been attempted in this country. It is essential to the continuance of our constitutional democracy that the judiciary be completely independent of both the executive and legislative branches of the government. Continuing to quote from the report, it is a measure which should be so emphatically rejected that its parallel will never again be presented to the free representatives of the free people of America. So Roosevelt's effort to pack the court was resoundingly unpopular. Now, interestingly, this failed effort and the accompanying public attacks on the court did have an effect In his favor, Associate Justice Owens at the time began voting with the liberal bloc of the court 
and another associate justice by the name of Van Devanter announced his retirement. Mark says he doubts this was a coincidence. Now, what is motivating this political treatment of the court? Why would the Democrats today particularly want the court in their hands? Well, of course, they want to destroy America. They want to destroy the Constitution. We already looked at the fact that they want to look more to the constitutions of other countries when they make their decisions rather than to our own. But Kermit Roosevelt, University of Pennsylvania law professor, Mark quotes him here on page 282, the most prominent face of this problem today, he says, is abortion. Generally speaking, Democratic appointees support abortion rights. Republican appointees to the court do not. Now, I'm not saying this, Mark is saying this in his book, I'm not saying it simply because abortion is my full-time issue and I believe the, the critical issue of our day. But various other people have come to this conclusion. This book you may be familiar with, I hope you are, Justice on Trial, The Kavanaugh Confirmation and the Future of the Supreme Court. This was written by Molly Hemingway and Carrie Severino. Let me quote something here that they say. Among the many issues on the liberal wish list that cannot be achieved through democratic means, one in particular motivated the opposition to Kavanaugh, abortion. It loomed over the entire confirmation process, from the nationwide speaking tour Rise Up for Roe to the laser focus on the two Republican senators who supported abortion rights, Collins and Murkowski. Planned Parenthood and NARAL was there every step of the way, financing protesters, TV ads, and celebrity appearances. The nation's abortion regime is dependent on the Supreme Court's decision creating a federal constitutional right to abortion. Without that intervention, it is almost certain that a nationalized abortion law would never have been achieved through the democratic process, whether through a constitutional amendment legislation in each of the states or a federal law mandating abortion on demand. The Democrats try to do that. It does not work because people in America reject unlimited abortion. We know the court actually fulfilled the fears of those who were saying, oh, it's all about abortion and we don't want them reversing Roe, because they did reverse Roe. But again, as I was saying before, that lines up perfectly with, no matter how what you think about abortion itself, with a purely constitutional view of the matter. Because there's nothing in the Constitution that confers a right to abortion. Never has. Nobody's ever claimed that it does. Justice Clarence Thomas, his confirmation, we're going to look at some of these confirmations in just a, a moment here, the assault that was launched against the nominees. He has, there is a film called Created Equal, and I hope that you've seen this. This is a documentary about his life. And you can go to justicethomasmovie.com. Justicethomasmovie.com. Go there, watch 
the story of his life. There's an interesting portion in there where in the coverage of his confirmation hearing in the Senate, which was presided over at the time by a certain Senator Joe Biden, Clarence Thomas says the thing that the committee was most concerned about was what would I rule to overturn Roe v. Wade? You see a pattern here? That's what they were most concerned about, the committee under Biden, the Senate Judiciary. How would Clarence Thomas, if he's appointed to the court, rule on Roe versus Wade? Abortion is a dogma for the left because it's so central to redefining sexuality, destroying the family, destroying life. The attacks on the court have manifested themselves on attacks on specific nominees. The politicization of the court, which is what the Democrats want, has crystallized in opposition to appointees made by Republican presidents. We go back to the history of one who did not make it onto the court, several who did make it onto the court, like Clarence Thomas, like Brett Kavanaugh, through very fiery confirmation processes, uh, have in fact been ruling in... um, pro-life and other other conservative ways. But one that did not make it onto a court, the the court, was uh, Robert Bork. I want to read a little bit here uh, from 285 uh, in Mark's book. Former District of Columbia Appeals Court Judge Robert Bork, his August 1987 nomination to the Supreme Court by President Ronald Reagan. Let me just read a little bit here. Bork was a giant among legal scholars and federal judges. Rarely had there been an individual so thoroughly qualified to serve as a justice. And this was what the Democratic Party feared. Their character assassination campaign against Bork was run like a political campaign. Millions were spent on opposition research by outside left-wing groups and on television commercials to distort Bork's record. The Washington Post and the New York Times news, opinion, and editorial pages relentlessly brutalized Bork, both personally and professionally. In the end, in October 1987, his confirmation failed 58 to 42. Hence, the modern war, the war against Republican nominees to the high court and even appellate courts, was launched. This confirmation process, which had been civil for much of American history, was ripped to shreds by the Democrat Party. And based on the things I've, I've, I've shown you so far, it, you could say it was ripped to shreds by Roe v. Wade. This ruling of the Supreme Court in 1973 set the stage for this to happen. That the, ju- that the battle over justice's confirmation to the court would become so bitter, so divisive, so intense, so politicized. And that, in fact, was one of the reasons the Supreme Court got rid of Roe v. Wade. If you read the Dobbs decision carefully that came out in June of, uh, of last year, you see something that they said about the corrosive effect of Roe versus Wade on other aspects of the way our government works. The judicial nomination process being just one example of many ways 
that we see the manifestation of what we call the abortion distortion. The so-called right to abortion, or considering that to be a constitutional right, distorts so much about our system of, of governance. And the bitter way that these hearings are, are, these nomination processes are conducted is one of the bitter fruits of that. Justice Clarence Thomas, once again, you remember what happened. Let me read again from Mark's book. Thomas was a conservative Republican. He did not share Marshall's judicial activism. Thomas was borked. Referring back to Robert Bork, he was borked. Once more led by Kennedy and Biden. This guy, when is this guy going to be finally flushed out of the American political system? He's been in there for half a century. Enough is enough. Biden, a Republican nominee, was slimed shortly after the Senate Judiciary Committee confirmations ended. An FBI interview with Anita Hill was leaked to the Democrat Party press. The culprit is believed by some to have been a committee Democrat. The committee vote was suspended. Subsequent televised testimony was taken. And the confirmation process turned into a Democrat Party-run circus. Or as Thomas would say to the committee and to the nation, quote, you remember these words, a national disgrace, a high-tech lynching for uppity blacks who in any way deign to think for themselves, end of quote. Reading on from Mark's book, Hill accused Thomas of sexually harassing words 10 years earlier, which was vehemently denied by Thomas. The Senate later voted to confirm him 52 to 48. The Democrats failed to stop Thomas, but just barely. And then who can forget, again, referencing uh, this great book by Molly and, and Carrie, Justice on Trial, who can forget what happened to Brett Kavanaugh. Now you see how the, of course, before him was Neil Gorsuch, but it was with Brett Kavanaugh that the Democrats saw that the balance of power would flip on the court, and so they went all out. Again, using the same, same playbook as had been used with... Uh, with uh, Justice Thomas. The Washington Examiner reports it this way, Kaylee McGee White. They hit him with an allegation of sexual assault that could not be corroborated right before his hearings and insisted without evidence that it was credible and that he was guilty. They not only leaked this allegation against his accuser's wishes, but pressured her to come forward and testify before the Senate Judiciary Committee, though she could not recall precisely when or where the alleged attack occurred or whom she had talked to about it. Even after the three friends Christine Blasey Ford named as witnesses, one of whom was a lifelong friend of Ford's, declined to corroborate her story, Democrats insisted that Kavanaugh was a rapist. Democrat Party hates America. And they've conducted a war on the Constitution. And that includes a war on our Supreme Court. And that leads to a war on Republican nominees to the court. I have here a, a chart that shows the margins 
by which the United States Senate confirmed justices to the Supreme Court that had been nominated by the President of the United States. I want to show you something here. If you go back to 1975, let's start there with President, under President Gerald Ford, he nominated John Paul Stevens to the Supreme Court. I want to read for you just a number of examples of what kind of margins of vote were, were the bipartisan support that so many of these nominees got from the United States Senate. This is interesting. I'm going to name a number of justices and then give you the vote margins. Now, of course, there are, there are this is not a straight line. There, there, there are aberrations here and there both ways. But you see the pattern very clearly that there was strong bipartisan support for the president's nominees, whether the president was Democrat or, or Republican, for many years. And in recent years, it has split down the middle. It's become more political. Justice John Paul Stevens, his vote of, of confirmation, 98 to 0. Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, that was a Reagan. The next three I'm going to mention are Ray, were Reagan appointees. Sandra Day O'Connor, 99 to 0. Antonin Scalia, 98-0. to zero. Now, how, that was right before Robert Bork, who, we, like we said, now well, was split down the middle, politicized, 42-58. to 58. But then after him, Anthony Kennedy, confirmed by 97-0. Under George H.W. Bush, David Souter was nominated to the court. This was right before, this was the nomination just before Clarence Thomas. His margin of acceptance, 90 to 9. Then, of course, Thomas, 52 to 48. Then, um, let's see. President Bill Clinton put two justices on the court. Ruth Bader Ginsburg. The bipartisan support for her nomination was a vote of 96 to 3. And Stephen Breyer, a vote of 89 to 7. Now, come under Donald Trump, three justices, right? Look what the margins were. Gorsuch, 54 to 45. Kavanaugh, 50 to 48. Can't get much closer than that. Amy Coney Barrett, 52 to 48. And even under Biden... Katanji Brown Jackson, 53 to 47. Oh, for the days of the 90s, right? The, the votes in the 90s. Not anymore. We haven't had a vote in the 90s since Ruth Bader Ginsburg was confirmed, 96 to 3, under Bill Clinton. The pattern is clear. Let's get back to a respect for our court, for the independence of the judiciary for the depoliticization of the courts, and let's pray for that right now. Father, we turn to you for America. We turn to you for the court. We turn to you for the Constitution. Lord God, there are people in this nation, and sadly there's a political party in this nation, that we can say with as objective a mind as we can muster, that hates America and that hates our Constitution. And Lord God, we oppose that hatred. Lord, we love our country, we love our Constitution, and we love all the provisions that the Constitution gives us. The Constitution gives us an independent judiciary, 
in its intention. The Constitution gives us the Supreme Court and the authority of Congress to create other courts. And Lord, we thank you, we just thank you that we have such a Constitution. And our gratitude for that, Lord, impels us to fight to preserve it from aberration, from corruption. Lord God, we ask you to bless all those who serve on the Supreme Court, bless them and their families and protect them. Lord God, we, we, you are the God of the future, and we ask that when this process does arise for nominations on the court, that we might be able to speak into that process and be active in that process, to defend the record, the qualifications of the justice, not the political positions or favors, but rather, Lord, may we look for qualified men and women who put the Constitution first before their own policy preferences. Give us this spirit here in America, Lord. Send out your Holy Spirit even now in anticipation of the next battle of this kind. Make your people prepared. We pray now in the words that Jesus gave us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. It's great to be with you, friends. Get Mark's book. Let's continue studying it together. We'll join you again tomorrow. Which is one of the largest and most visible pro-life organizations in the world. This ministry relies on your financial support to be able to do its work, produce its programs, and travel the world to advocate for the unborn. May I ask you to support Priests for Life generously? Go today to ProLifeGift.org and give as generous a gift as you can. Thank you so much and be assured of our daily prayers for you. This has been the End Abortion Podcast. To learn more, to help end abortion, and to connect with us on social media, visit endabortion.net.